Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. What does a Christian look like? Can you spot them on the street like you can a police officer or maybe a construction worker? Of course, other religions have created simple, easy, visible ways to spot their adherents, haven't they? Required clothing or hair can set apart their adherents or their really good adherents, their best members. But it can be frustratingly hard to spot a Christian, can't it? It's even worse when so many so-called Christians who most want to visibly display to the world that they are Christians look so extremely unchristian, isn't it? Haven't you ever thought it would just be nice to know an absolute for sure way that you can spot a Christian? Like a special sign or a handshake, you know? Don't you, just, don't you want something like that? Or a special article of clothing, maybe a ring? <laughs> Wouldn't that help you feel just a little bit more comfortable knowing who to treat as a Christian? Even a little bit more comfortable knowing that I'm a Christian. I've got the ring. I know the handshake. I'm verified. I'm in. And me and the other Christians could just feel better and better as we used that, those signs to verify each other's Christianity. What if someone came to you, like these teachers came to Galatia so long ago, like many teachers have come through history and said, I have it. I have the way for you to know proof positive whether or not you are a Christian, and then know who you should treat as a Christian. Seemed pretty exciting, pretty enticing to these Galatians. And then into this scenario barrels old Paul with his letter to the Galatians. And today we will continue Paul's biography, and Paul is going to begin to show us what is really at stake for the church if we allow this desire to distinguish ourselves with markers, with additions to what it means to be God's people, to set into our churches, what will happen to your churches if those little changes to what a Christian is take hold? What will this do in our relationships with each other? So let's look at Galatians 2, verses 1 to 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me, for mine to the Gentiles. 
And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. So last week in Paul's biography, we heard about his first trip to Jerusalem as a Christian to absolutely demonstrate, to prove, to show that his gospel was definitely the true gospel and that he was indeed one of the apostles whom God had appointed as a trusted source of that gospel. Now we hear of another trip Paul makes to Jerusalem many years later, and it's really important for us to get a sense of what is at stake in this trip to Jerusalem. Paul says that he went to make sure he had not run, had not persevered in his ministry in vain. What could have made Paul nervous that his whole gospel apostolic ministry could have been for nothing? Now, Paul's concern was even instigated by a revelation from God. So God is clearly demonstrating his concern for this problem as well, this reason Paul has to go to Jerusalem. This problem could pervert the gospel. It could make the apostles' ministry useless. It could spell doom for the whole church that the apostles were laying the foundation for in their preaching. So what was this great danger? We see it in verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. Spies. Paul is talking about espionage. Cue the theme music. There are spies and they have infiltrated the church. Workers of that great criminal mastermind, the enemy of God and his people, are spitefully spying out this thriving new people of God, and they are plotting to destroy us. Paul says that if you reject the gospel of grace, if you reject the church shaped by the gospel that forms out of it, this is who you are. You are the spy the servant of Satan plotting to destroy the church by enticing its members out of freedom back into slavery. This concept of freedom and slavery will become a major theme through Galatians. Freedom is the life that we have in the gospel. And slavery is the outcome of every opposing gospel that the world could contrive, including the particular gospel that's being preached in Galatia of salvation based on Jewish law-keeping. These gospels leave you a slave, not just to rules, but Paul says ultimately to sin. Apart from the grace of God, we are only all slaves. Our will, made to be free is enslaved then to its own love of sin. Worldly people love to talk about freedom right now. Freedom is a virtue in our world, but it is increasingly clear that people always need their freedom to do what they cannot help but do. I didn't choose to be this way, so I must be free to be this way. I must have this, so you must make me free to have it. Do you see the contradiction there? They need freedom so they can be enslaved. And if you tell them that they can actually be free from the thing that has enslaved them, that they can choose whether or not to do it, most of us know the consequences in the world of challenging that kind of enslavement. 
apart from God, whatever gospel or whatever good news you come up with is actually going to make you more of a slave rather than free you from it. Think of the good news of being true to yourself, true to what you already are enslaved to be, of following your dreams, following the things that your mind has already told you you have to do. Even just being the better you, one that appeals to some objective, some divine standard, even your own standards. Human gospels will create rules and traditions that some people want to follow so that you can feel more proud of yourself, more confident that you are doing well while you continue to serve your sin. The Pharisees in Jesus' day had found out how to accommodate God's law, God's good law, to such a false gospel. This law that was given as a gift to those whom God had already said, we saw in Caleb's passage, are his people. The laws that a father has given for thriving to those he already loved. They watered this down to this series of exterior actions, no longer caring about the heart as we saw in Deuteronomy. Exterior actions which somebody could accomplish while their heart hated God. These are just here to set apart the good people from the bad people. This is the handshake. This is the sign. The people who deserve to get glory from the ones who don't. Because in order to prove that you are accomplishing your own good news, that you are getting your salvation done, you always have to have someone else to point to, to show that you are succeeding while they are failing. I know I'm being saved. I know I'm doing it right because he's doing it wrong. That's the proof that I am in a better place than he is. You need bad people to prove there are good people. Part of the enslavement to false gospels is how they ensnare us in divisive hypocrisy. Now in Christ, you can be radically and wonderfully set free, both from the sin that enslaves you and those false gospels that only entrench you in your enslavement. The gospel breaks the bonds that sin has on our own will so that it can be truly free to choose what is good and wonderful. It breaks the pride that our sinful will was full of, which enslaves us to false gospels and hypocrisy. Jesus' death on our behalf sets us free from ever having to worry that we need to present something to God to be saved, that we have to show off, that we have to have the right markers when we show up at God's throne of judgment. We don't have to show our works to anybody. It allows us to simply say, I have Christ's righteousness. I trust in what he did for me. And that his righteousness was imputed to me just as surely as my wrath was taken by him on the cross. And Paul's going to go on to show us in Galatians how this means that we then have the spirit in us. That our relationship with God brings the spirit of God into our very hearts so that we can actively every day walk according to his will. We can choose what is righteous. The gospel life is a life of freedom unto freedom. But then spies... Spies come saying Paul is not an apostle. Paul's gospel is a false gospel. They've come because they themselves are still enslaved. Because all that they can love are gospels that give them ways to prove that they are succeeding while others are failing. So they look at this freedom in the church and they say, no, I hate that. That takes away everything I'm enslaved to and I have to bring them all back into slavery so that my gospel can work. Disguised as counselors and teachers, they say, wouldn't it just be nice, oh, insecure Christian, to have a couple ways, a couple markers to make sure you're a Christian. 
You're never going to feel secure in your salvation if you're just trusting in what Jesus has done for you. That's why God's given you just a few very simple, very easy ways to set yourself apart. And then to set yourself apart, the false teacher can point at your neighbor. Look, he doesn't have those markers. Look, they clearly aren't doing well. They should be nervous about whether or not they're a Christian at all. But not you. Look what you have. Look at how well you're doing. There's two kinds of markers that we have seen through history, even in scripture, that false brothers and spies in the church will try and introduce. On the one hand, they might introduce marks of true faith that are in reality totally arbitrary to Christian righteousness. All true Christians must wear blue hats. See, that's totally arbitrary. Uh, The perfectly righteous Christian, Jesus himself, could have gone through his whole life and never put on a blue hat. It is totally arbitrary to righteousness. And this seems ridiculous until you remember that these arbitrary markers are coming every day from the culture around you. I think we need to start judging believers by class, by caste, by birthplace, by ethnicity, or by some cultural marker of what a good Christian is, such as clothing or hairstyle. The more subtle kind of mark, the other kind of mark that a false brother or a spy might try and introduce is one that truly does twist really righteous actions. You take an action that is meant to be a sign that you are God's child, that God is teaching you, that he loves you, the fruit of sanctification, and you shift it to make it a requirement for a relationship with God. Imagine an adopted son whose father is teaching him that he must share his toys. And the son suddenly starts fretting because he's worried that if they don't share their toys, their parents are going to say, well, then you're clearly not our son. Our son shares their toys. If you want to be our son, if you want to be our child, you need to share. No, the father says, I'm not teaching you so I can figure out whether you're my child. I'm teaching you to share because this is what I do for my child. The fact that I am teaching you, the fact that I am growing you, that I am imparting this righteousness to you should be evidence to you to rest in that you are already my son, just as surely as Israel got the law because God had delivered them out of Egypt to be his people. Now imagine a child who prefers that sharing be a mark of who is really a family member, so that then they could go to their siblings and say, I'm the true son, and you're not. Now this good action, this fruit of the relationship with their father has become a mark so the son can know who's in and who's out. And consider this, how quickly will the proud heart of that son start to want more markers and might even go looking for arbitrary markers from the families and cultures around them to add to his sense of pride that he is the true son. You know, dad was wearing a blue hat the other day. Maybe you are more of a true son if you have on a blue hat. History has proven this is true too many times. The Pharisees, the Roman church, the Anabaptists, even evangelicals, 
every time you take righteous actions and turn them into necessary markers of who gets justified, you will become enslaved to pride and you will start adding other markers that you get from the culture around you. What starts as a seeming call to righteousness, requiring people to be holy, is going to eventually turn into men sitting on poles in the desert. Or people rejecting electricity, performing acts of penance, telling other people what they have to wear or eat. Consider how trapped in a certain cultural time and place in history most churches following false gospels become. All false gospels lead us to pride, division, and enslavement to sin. But they can start subtly, seemingly so innocently, cleverly disguised by spies in the church. This was the situation in Galatia. Spies were using the good law of Israel as a way for people to create external markers to show that they were the true believers. They started in Jerusalem as Paul says here, and said, look at you, you're a Jew. Your people were worshiping God when his ancestors over there were still sacrificing their children to Molech. Look at those disgusting Gentile sins that he just can't get over, that he's still struggling with. I doubt he's even really a Christian yet. You know, he should try and act a little bit more like you. Has he even read God's law? That's what always set us apart as God's people, isn't it? Does he even know it? I hear he's not even circumcised. How can you and he be a part of the same people? How can you and he be family? This was the lie that these false brothers and spies were whispering in the ear of Jewish Christians. So what was at stake here was indeed the gospel and therefore the church itself. The Judaizers were ready to split the church on cultural lines to say that it would be wrong for Jewish Christians to welcome the Gentiles into this great historic people with a long history of relationship to God going back to Abraham. Not until you Gentiles clean up your act and adopt some of these marks like circumcision and Jewish tradition. The Gentiles could either agree with this And thus, you'd have a whole church resting on a false gospel of works-based righteousness. Or they could disagree and split, and you'd immediately have two churches. A major schism in the people of God that would almost definitely doom both sides to pride and prejudice. Which is great if you're writing a novel, but horrible if you're trying to found the church. The gospel and the church rise and fall together. If the gospel is lost, the church dies. This is what was at stake for Paul. This is why he says in verse 5 that he would not yield in submission to those spies even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. He knows the gospel is at stake if these spies of the devil in God's church add a single rule, a single tradition, a single external marker, arbitrary or taken from what is wise or righteous, a single thing to what Jesus has accomplished for us. This is what is at stake when Paul goes to Jerusalem, why his whole apostolic ministry seems to be on the line. And part of what made this trip a big deal was his companion Titus. Paul isn't just coming whether or not to debate If the Gentiles can be fully welcomed into the same people by the same gospel of grace as the Jews. He is bringing 
a real flesh and blood, entirely uncircumcised Gentile. If the apostles really did say that the gospel of grace united Jew and Gentile as God's people, Titus would be the test of whether or not they believed what they were saying. Would they welcome him in fellowship? Would they share Lord's Supper with him? Would they receive him as a brother in Christ and as a part of the same family as they, Jews? It is very easy to say, this is my doctrine, and totally ignore the definition of doctrine, which means truth. It's so easy to ignore it and not apply it in how we live. As John argues in his epistle, I cannot see your relationship with God. It is hard for me to see that you believe the gospel. But I can get a glimpse of what you think of the gospel in how you treat others. Do you receive them as a brother or sister based on the grace of Christ? Or do you evaluate them based on markers and additions to the gospel? The question of whether the apostles would receive Titus, an uncircumcised Greek, was the rubber meeting the road for them. Would they actually live by the gospel of grace or would they reject Titus? Or would they maybe just say, you know what, Titus is a different kind of Christian who should go to a different kind of church. We can send him back to the Gentile churches he came from. This is why Paul is so eager to report to these Galatians who are being infected by the same lies that no one in Jerusalem forced Titus to be circumcised. Titus was not treated as an unbeliever. He was not treated as a different kind of Christian or class of Christian or part of a different church. The Jerusalem apostles embraced Titus just as Paul had. And then they affirmed that they and Paul were indeed preaching the same gospel for Jews and Gentiles and thus laying one foundation together for the church. As Paul says it, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised also worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing we were eager to do. The apostles affirm that preaching in different places does not make Paul and Barnabas founders of a different church than the apostles in Jerusalem. They are all preaching the same gospel, resting on one Savior, who himself commanded that there is one mission to carry his one gospel to many, many places. The gospel does not change when it is preached to Jews or to Gentiles. It doesn't change whether it's preached in Jerusalem or Rome or Hong Kong or Rio de Janeiro or Winnipeg. And if it's the same gospel, it all grows the same church with the same salvation for all its people. It knits us together in love as brothers and sisters, even a love that cares for each other, where we need to take care of the poor, where we need to see each other's needs and love each other because we are bound together by the gospel every day. Just as was true for these apostles, it is one thing to claim this as your truth, as your doctrine, and another thing to actually walk and live every day like it is true. 
It is one thing to claim that you believe the gospel of grace and another not just to stake your life on it, but even to every day love others based upon it. What does it look like now to be one family resting on one foundation that is spread all over the world? It means that there are important ways that we must all be the same. And there are important ways that it would be wicked to try and make us look the same. There is true unity that is absolutely necessary for the church that sets apart a true brother from a false brother. Unity that we share by having faith in the same gospel, proclaiming the same work that Christ has done for each of us. If the apostles failed to recognize that unity with Titus, what they shared, then the whole church would have fallen apart. But then there are false unities. There are unities that, we could, that the apostles could have declared they share with each other and just ruled Titus out from. Unity based on ethnicity or shared history. Then there are also unities that they could have welcomed Titus into. Come join us by being circumcised. Come join us by following this tradition, and those would have been wicked if carried out and also caused the church to fall apart. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the gospel really does accomplish something miraculous and beautiful, which is called the church. Revelation paints a beautiful picture of God's people gathered around his throne, which shows us what the gospel makes us into. Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is what Christ wants his bride to look like. That is what she will look like when she is fully sanctified and presented to him. That is the finished church. That is what Christ finds beautiful, a people from every nation, tribe, language, people, proclaiming one salvation together. That was his plan when Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. It was his plan when God told Abraham and you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The gospel is what shapes us as a church into that beautiful picture of the bride. When the foundation of the church is the true gospel, that everyone, no matter who they are, what they've done, where they came from, can be reconciled to God by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on their behalf to live in his kingdom forever. Jesus rose from the dead. That is the foundation that can support a household built of stones that are drawn in from all over the world, from every people and background. The gospel can create a diverse people who rest on a true unity. In the age of the apostles, the church was going through intense growing pains toward this big, beautiful picture of God's household. That's why the reception of Titus was such a big deal. But even now, as the church continues to grow, it remains paramount for us that we consider, that we continue 
to make sure every day that we are indeed unified stones resting only on the gospel foundation, which is meant to unite us. The question of whether we here now as a church are holding tightly to the one true gospel of grace, unwilling to exchange it for any gospel of works or markers, that will be displayed most clearly in how we love and accept each other. It is our everyday acts in the local church of loving and embracing and caring for every person to whom the gospel has united us to. That is how God is accomplishing through history his big, beautiful plan for the church. The same gospel's truths that were at stake when Titus stood before the apostles are at stake in every local church. The daily work of resting in and living in and walking in the gospel is about knowing where our true unity lies and contrasting it with false unities that would leave us divided and enslaved. The spies of Satan, just as they did with Jewish culture, will come to our churches with markers of righteousness to help us identify who the real Christians are and who they're not who you can really unite with and who you should divide yourself from. And they will whisper in your ears just like they did in Jerusalem about what makes you a Christian. What a good Christian you are. You were raised in a Christian home. You have a really intelligent gospel. You're the one who gives all their time to the ministry of the church. You shouldn't be counted among these people who were just saved yesterday. They don't even like the worship music that you do. Did you see what they were wearing to church? Surely, you should not have to put up with this. They might try and divide us on arbitrary cultural lines, like musical instruments and church clothes. Or they might use real acts of righteousness and twist those into markers of who gets to count as a Christian. Look at that sin that he's still struggling with. You really should have gotten it together by now. It's making us all look bad that he's still struggling with those things. There's no way he's a Christian. I think we can identify a few ways that our current culture is trying to dictate new lines that we should draw in Jesus' church. Political lines are very significant right now. For some of us, to hear a brother or sister in the church talk about diversity or even abuse in the church makes the hairs of our necks stand up because the spies have told us, here they come, here's the social justice warrior. And we wonder whether that person should be in the church with us. Or on the other side, we hear someone talk about freedom of conscience or cultural dangers that they're worried about for the church and the spies whisper in our ear, here they are, another conspiracy theorist, another internet troll. And we wonder whether they should be in the church with us. Questions related to climate, to globalization, to social assistance are questions which the world has told us as Christians to divide over, to form separate churches over, to kick people out over. Those who otherwise have agreed and said, yes, I rest on the same gospel of grace alone as you do. This current long drawn out COVID situation has created new threats to our unity. New ways that the world is teaching us that we can judge the good people from the bad people and even start to wish that this person wasn't even a part of our church anymore. 
that we didn't have to call them brother or sister. Look at him. The world's got him so scared of death that he has to wear a mask and vaccinate. He'd have us all meeting in a field in winter just so we didn't catch any germs. Surely I should not have to think about what he wants when I consider how I'm going to do church. Why should I have to accommodate him? If he doesn't want to worship the way that we've worshipped, then he can go home. Or on the other side, look at her. She's so obsessed with her rights that she won't even wear a mask or vaccinate. She'd have us picking up snakes and getting bit by them just to prove that we weren't afraid of death and enslaved to the government. Surely I should not have to go to church with people who are being so reckless, so defiant. My presence would just affirm their behavior. They should not be at church with me. You see, when you start to see the distinctions that our culture is drawing, when you start to see the lines that they are telling us to judge each other on, the things that are running rampant in the world around us, in the churches around us, do you start to see that unity based around the gospel alone is hard work? Letting the gospel unite us with those who, apart from the gospel, we would have seen as enemies or beneath us, people we would have rejected a long time ago. It is one thing to love diversity as an idea. To love it in all the stock photos that we put on our brochures. But it is another thing to actually receive daily, love daily, care for daily brothers and sisters who are very different from you. Who come from very different situations. Who have very different experiences from you. Who have very different backgrounds and different histories and different fears to day-to-day -day embrace them as brother and sister, and then to care for their needs, to unite with them, to be fully united with them in Christ, when your society is telling them you, you, that you must reject them. That is the rubber meeting the road on your claim to love the gospel of grace. And this unity can be costly. To call someone a brother or sister that the world demands that you divide from could cost you the respect of the community around you. You might lose the favor and influence of consequential people who are pressuring you and judging you based on their own laws and preferences. Notice how important it is for Paul to continue to say that he is not beholden to the opinions of any man. It did not matter how important, how influential, how persuasive those Judaizers were. Paul could not yield to them for a moment. What room did he have to let men who hated the gospel tell him who he would receive in his church? Their goal was to enslave the church. Enslave us to rules that diminished and destroyed the beautiful picture of Jesus' bride. To enslave us under one culture, one tradition, one group's preferences. Enslave us to pride so that we would hate and reject each other. Enslave us to sin once again, totally losing the gospel and what it accomplishes. That was what they were out for in the church. And we must never let our non-believing friends, colleagues, neighbors dictate to us who the gospel reconciles us to to whom we are united as brother or sister, who we will love and care for, who we will be patient with, who we will consider in their needs and their struggles, 
We will never let them lure us back into cliques and prejudices that they are enslaved to, robbing us of the freedom we have in Christ as a diverse people unified on the gospel. Paul even says he was cautious among believers, even cautious among the apostles, that he would never let influence or esteem govern the gospel he preached or the way that he let that gospel shape his church. Paul says of the apostles, those who seemed influential to me, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality to those, I say, who seemed influential, added nothing to me. So not only with non-believers, but even with the most influential men in the church, with true Christian brothers, Paul was still careful not to let vanity or desire for influence lead him to reject any single person to whom the gospel had united him, to embrace any false gospel which must be exposed as the work of spies in the church. That is part of the way Paul was so able to recognize who the spies were, to expose them as infiltrators. Because Paul has said there is somebody who we must reject, who we must call anathema, anyone who despises or distorts the gospel of grace. And preserving our unity in the truth will depend upon us recognizing who is a false brother or sister, who really is a spy, not because they haven't met our markers, but because they have rejected Christ as he is in his gospel and rejected the true unity we have as his people. So church, are you letting the gospel of grace alone by faith alone? The gospel, not of what you have done, but what Christ has done entirely for us. Are you letting that be the whole foundation of who you fellowship with as a brother or sister in Christ? Not just calling them Christians, but loving and caring for their needs as family. Are you afraid of what you will lose for embracing them? Is your own fear of the world leading you to want to take away their freedom by demanding that they conform to your preferred extra distinctions in the church. Brothers and sisters, let us be on our guard to not just claim the gospel, but put in the hard daily work in the face of a cliquey, divisive, prejudiced world to unite solely based on what Christ has done for us, dealing with each other with great humility because of our love for Christ and our love for his family. As we do this, we can watch Jesus accomplish what the world has told us is impossible. Unity, reconciliation, love among people where the world would have said it just can't happen. Christ will be glorified as his grace accomplishes in the church what no human gospel could. This gathering this morning us gathered here glorifies him in this way. As we look around and we see some of the unlikely subjects that Christ has reconciled us to. Because none of us is likely to be here. None of us deserves our place sitting among his family. We are only all here sinners redeemed by the gospel of grace. And we together then, as this glorious picture of what Christ has done when we could do nothing, become this foretaste of that beautiful picture in Revelation. A wonderful, diverse, rich people, totally united 
by who they praise. United in the praise of the one who died to turn enemies and aliens into a people for God. To turn strangers into a bride for Christ. To turn isolated sinners into united body under one head, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what the gospel accomplishes in each of us individually and then in us as a people. Father, may we never in our thinking or in our actions trade this gospel for something cheaper that would enslave us no matter what the cost. And Father, in that holding to the gospel, may we be a help and support for each other, walking in love and unity that is founded only on Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And may he be glorified in us as his people. Even now, as we wait for that eternal glory, he will receive from us around the throne. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.